My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 129, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Kings 11, Ecclesiastes 9-12, through 12, and Psalm 9. 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men in Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then, taking people from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own. Queen Topanes, in marriage, the sister of Topanes bore him a son named Genbath, whom Topanes brought up in the royal palace. There, Genbath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his ancestors and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, that I may return to my own country. What have you lack here that you want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rizan, son of Iladah, who had fled from his master, Hadad-Dazir, king of Zobah. 
When David destroyed Zobah's army, Rezan gathered a band of men around him and became their leader. They went to Damascus, where they settled and took control. Rezan was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezan ruled in Aram and was hostile toward Israel. Also, Jeroboam, son of Zabat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeradah, and his mother was a widow named Zerah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now, Zeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Aseroth, the goddess of the Sidonites, Shemosh, the god of Moabites, and Molech, the god of Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hands. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me, and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Ecclesiastes 9. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteousness and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten." 
their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happened under the sun. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and is your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going there is nothing working nor planning nor no, no knowledge, no wisdom." I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning of their words are folly, at the end they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag because of idle hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king, even in your own thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days you may receive return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things.
Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However, many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the day of trouble come, and the year approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed. And the gold bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. Sitting enthroned is the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forgot God. 
But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Arise, Lord. Do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Okay, 1 Kings 11 is ending the story of Solomon. And as I think we've talked about before, a thousand women in his harem. Oh my goodness, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And the author is clear, they turned his heart, which is what Deuteronomy 16, 17 forecasted and what is said here. And again, it's not because they're women and it's not because they're foreign. It's because they all committed to their own foreign gods, which is sad. It doesn't say why they weren't converted to or didn't want to. We don't know all those details. But the point is, the mistake is held with Solomon. And I think, I didn't mention it yesterday, but in Ecclesiastes, again, we the author of Ecclesiastes, Dr. Tim Mackey says it's anonymous, but the teacher in it that they talk about, so chapter 7, verse 2, 27, looks as the teacher, this is what I have discovered. And we read the part that said, I have found one upright man among a thousand, but no one upright woman among them all. I think because the teacher in this is illustrating, exemplifying, the personification being given is in Solomon's voice and character. And then we see this connected here in First Kings 11, how his wife's turned his heart and what that will mean for all of Israel. And yet God is still faithful. I mean, I just continue from Genesis 3 to present. It just continues to be amazing to me how God is faithful to his promise, even though we, even though he was not fully faithful and obedient as God had instructed. So we will know that Israel is going to have some more tragedy and breakdown. It's coming, but that also creates a way for Jesus pointing to the need for someone other than a human king, because we're going to continue to see kings just oh, implode. And we'll put a pin in that, and we're going to visit the Gospel of Mark and then come back to the story of Israel. And then in Ecclesiastes, which continues to be a hard book to understand, it's one of the three most specific books, as Dr. Mackey says, of wisdom in the Old Testament. Yeah, Dr. Mackey describes it as a reminder of the tendency to live in a divine disconnect. This is how he describes Ecclesiastes. It's really interesting as a divine disconnect. Dr. Mackey challenges me to consider what expectations I am seeking from God. He challenges me to consider if I am subscribing to the religious myth that God is like a genie or a self-help answer where my acceptance of him, like taking the genie's lamp, will result in him solving my life's problems, fulfilling me as I want to be fulfilled, making my life better as I see it and want it. I'll somehow be happier and more successful because I, emphasis on I, I accepted God. And I, or we, did it for ourselves, for the hope and desire of God fulfilling what we want, how we want, when we want it. Oh, wow, that's convicting. And I mean, we live in a very consumer culture. It's hard to stay away from that mindset. But wow, he really convicted me to think about what I, what we tend to do 
when we experience really hard things. This is really when I think the rubber meets the road. He says our heart's core beliefs sometimes bubble to the surface even more intently, our values show. And this is true as well in value research. Under hardship and duress, core values really become stronger and emerge. And we may find that we blame or get angry at God because perhaps we thought if we did the Jesus thing or accepted Jesus, that God would give us a good life. This sort of leans into the prosperity gospel thinking, but that's for another day. This is where the divine disconnect happens, though. And Ecclesiastes is highlighting these very uncomfortable truths about what we should expect out of life and what we should expect out of God's involvement in our lives. In a way, we can know things, we can have wisdom, but we will never have full comprehension. That belongs to God. And we're a part of his story. And if that frustrates you, I totally get it. It's scary. I like to know and understand things too. And it's hard to move or make choices in a world when you don't understand all the things, right? But when we want or demand to comprehend it all, we're asking for his throne. We're asking for him to be a part of our world instead of giving our heart to him and being willing to be a part of his story. Dr. Mackey reminds us that Proverbs are not promises, they're generalizations. And the wisdom book of Job really challenges many proverbial wisdoms and questions how often these really happen. Then Ecclesiastes describes this confusion as haval. Remember that Hebrew word that while my interpretation says meaningless, it might be more illustrative to think of it as vapor, which is how that word seems to really be depicted in, in Hebrew of all, vapor. That is our lived experience. It's constantly referred to as meaningless or vapor. And vapor is real. We can see it and sense it, experience it, but we cannot grab a hold of it with our hands, which I think is the illustrative point of our lives. That's the wisdom. We can't grab a hold of the things that God blessed and gave in us into this world. We can experience them, though. This goes back to the religious myth that Dr. Mackey points out. Are we asking God to be a part of our story and blaming God when it's not working as we want it to, like we can't grab a hold of that vapor? Or are we accepting God's invitation to be a part of his story, enjoying what he's given us on earth, his order, and being a part of his rescue mission, turned redemption story and a kingdom that has no end and will be renewed or fully restored in his time and way as he promised, because God delivers on his promises, and he's asking us to remember and obey. That's where meaning happens in this relationship of understanding our order, how he created us, our relationship to him, enjoying the gifts, the vapor that is in the world. But when these things are in conflict between like what we want, we don't reach to try and grab a hold of that vapor with our hands. We're willing to make sacrifices and we're willing to do what God's asked us to do, like go to the house of mourning for others or with others. It's uncomfortable, but I hope Ecclesiastes is also an encouragement. It's refreshing and clarifying on the wisdom and meaning of life. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. 
What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.